All right, welcome back to Voicecraft. Very excited to bring this conversation to you with the outstanding philosopher Cadell Last. For those of you who are returning to the podcast, you might be familiar with Cadell from the Philosophy of Lack series with Alex Ebert and OG Rose. This is a conversation about novelty and lineage. It's something that also speaks to notions of spirit in relation with reason, in relation with religion, in relation with knowing. Found it immensely valuable to share some evolving thinking on this subject. Cadell's a unique mind to engage with. I'm a big fan of what he's doing with Philosophy Portal, which you'll hear us speak about towards the end of the conversation. So I hope you enjoy this dialogue with Cadell Last. He's got a new book coming out. It's called Systems and Subjects. He's previously authored Global Brain Singularity, which focuses on the nature of temporality and the future of consciousness. And he's also co-authored Sex Masculinity God, which focuses on the consequences of libidinal energy, gender identity and theological mysteries as they relate to our formation of knowledge. So it's a bloody pleasure to bring this to you. Wishing you very well wherever you are. Here we go. It's good to be here with you, Cadell. Thank you for um, taking the time. I feel like we've had too few conversations, really, for the amount that I've come to respect your work and also the quality of your thinking and your openness to thinking critically as well as creatively. So, yeah, I have been looking forward to this. And um, we've spoken a little bit before. We've just started recording here. And the overarching frame, or at least the departure point, that this conversation can be seen as journeying with is novelty and lineage, which I think is a really powerful coupling. And um, as I was saying to you just before as well, it might be that this is just a slightly highfalutin way to speak about the relationship between sons and fathers. This has been something that's been very powerfully present for me this year, obviously with my father's passing away in January. And I know as well that your relationship with your father and grandfather has been, you know, certainly a, an, an important waypoint in your own development and um, quality of thinking and relating to the world. But in the context of novelty and lineage, I suppose just to give you an opportunity to introduce the kind of thought and the kind of um, thinking lineage that you carry the torch for, at least you know, some of the time, uh, well, I suppose all of the time, but there's, there's, there's more to you. In fact, there is novelty to you, I believe, rather than just lineage, but we'll have to see what you think about it. I know that the thought of Hegel, the thought of Nietzsche, the thought of Zizek, you know, Freud, of course, as well, these are all very important thinkers to you, and all of them giants in at least the history of Western philosophy. And so, one of the sort of creative tensions that I want to work with in this conversation is that relationship between the necessity of relating to one's culture and the historicity of one's culture, um, seeking to understand how it is one is already influenced by minds of the past and the broader ecology and whole systemic reality and nature of subjectivity as it's evolved of course but there is a reality to the mimetic ocean that we swim in and 
these memes, these ideas also become our perceptions and influence the very way we perceive, as I just said. So there's a necessity of coming to relate to the great minds of our past, while at the same time, if we only see ourselves, at least I'd put to you on the other side of this tension, if we only see ourselves forever as students, never to that point where, or in fact, never at all even deeply metabolizing authentically for ourselves the objects of thinking, the nature of subjectivity, for instance, then there's a sense in which we might not be doing the thing at all. We might not be actually fully living as member of lineage, living as in real contact with reality, as creativity. And so I just wonder what you make of this tension and maybe how you might like to frame this, particularly in the context of how you've been influenced maybe by thinkers like Hegel. Yeah, that's a great opening. And so many ideas are competing for my attention right now. Um, the metaphor that you use um, of the mimetic ocean might be an interesting place to jump off on because Freud is actually quite famous for um, deriding, uh, pretty sure it was in Beyond the Pleasure Principle, deriding the idea, or no, civilization and its discontents, uh, deriding the idea of the oceanic feeling. And the oceanic feeling is actually this feeling of oneness, um, often connected to a psychedelic trip or some hypnotic state, basically where you are an undifferentiated uh, one. You know, I am the whole ocean. Um, I remember actually listening to an interesting unofficial recording of Osho where he was talking about how he was the entire ocean and there were all these people crying around him. It was a very raw tape. <laughs> and, and there were all these people crying around him and he was like, you are little streams coming into my ocean and then you'll be reborn after being coming into my ocean and stuff like that, which is something really interesting to think as well. But this, <clears throat> but this oceanic, this mimetic ocean that you're talking about, I think is something different. I think we have to think about this um, mimetic ocean as like an ocean where there are predators, you know, like there are other, uh, you know, there are competing mimetic species in the ocean. It's not like, oh, I'm the whole ocean. It's like, oh shit, there's a shark over there. You know, like there's a, <laughs> you know, there's some predators over there. You know, there, there's this meme, actually, there's this meme where, uh, you know, uh, it says this fish is in a goldfish bowl and the goldfish bowl is labeled religion. And then the ocean is labeled spirituality. And then it shows the fish jumping out of the goldfish bowl into the ocean, you know, freeing itself from religion into the spiritual ocean. Yeah. But right. then I want to edit the meme and say, once the fish jumps out of the fish bowl, there's a shark that eats it, you know, like, <laughs> so it's not this, you know, so it's not this, uh, you know, oceanic feeling of a uh, bliss, but like this oceanic mimetic, uh, landscape, you know, like, so I, I think this is, this is, a, this is an interesting, um, place to, to start to think about, um, not only mimesis, but, but sort of the lineages that we end up developing to one way you could say it is survive in the mimetic ocean. <laughs> Another way you could see it is that you, you are not just reduced to sort of Darwinian reproduction of sort of, or survival 
of your of, of your mimetic process, but also that you are participating in something immortal. You know, you are part participating in something which transcends you in in an in an immortal way, and 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 uh, you know, I, I think that that does sort of reflect. Um, Freud's idea about the conflict between the ego and the sex instincts, where really the conflict between the ego and the sex instincts boil down to that the ego is really experiencing neurosis and hysteria because it doesn't really know how to fit itself within this immortal chain, which is just going on and on and on and on and on, right? Like, like um, one thing, I, I don't know, I've mentioned it in a podcast before, but Richard Dawkins, um, actually regrets calling his famous book, The Selfish Gene, The Selfish Gene. He said, I should have called it The Immortal Gene because what he's talking about is that, that the genes are using us. That's the selfishness. They're using us as a part of something which actually is billions of years old and actually, if left to its own devices, would just go on forever, you know, like, it, you know, people, uh, this is a really, this is like one of my favorite thoughts actually is that if the physics of the universe were to remain constant, meaning that it wasn't going towards a thermodynamic heat death, then life would just go on forever. Like it, it's, it's basically immortal. So we're, we're, we're participating in that, in that immortal chain, so to speak. And the ego, of course, uh, would like itself to be immortal. And of course it's not. So we are participating in these lineages. Um, and of course, as a man and, and you know, your own personal experience uh, as a man, of course, our, our perception of that is going to be colored a lot by the father to son lineage. And I do think a lot of my, well, I will say for my personal development that um, I've always spontaneously gravitated towards older men that I respect. Uh, that I admire, that uh, inspire me, um, not exclusively, not exclusively, but um, but definitely that gravitation. There have been also very influential older women that I've looked up to. One of my first intellectual heroes was Jane Goodall, for example, who I first got into when I was studying chimpanzees. So it's not. Uh, I'm also ex extremely inspired by Alenka Zupancic, the psychoanalyst, uh, philo philosophical psychoanalyst. So these things are not um, explicitly uh, man and woman, but uh, certainly there is this gravitation and there have been men who I've gravitated towards who have inspired me. And some of those men have been dead. Like you said, uh, Hegel and Nietzsche and Freud have been uh, huge in my um, intellectual development. And <clears throat> it is very difficult to walk that line between sort of um, paying respect to the past, really understanding the inside of their minds, what they actually thought, um, and also bringing something new to the table, bringing a differentiation to the table. Um, and how, what's the art of that process of, of bringing something new to the table? So uh, before I stop, I'll just say one of the paradoxes that I wrestle with is uh, in Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit, um, you get this sense that in the state of absolute knowing that what you're opening up to is this process of self-differentiation. It's like the process of self-differentiation as such. 
But then, you know, the paradox would be like, okay, I understand Hegel's phenomenology of spirit. And he's saying that absolute knowing is involving this process of self-differentiation. But if I just go on being a Hegelian, then is that self-differentiation? How am I, you know what I mean? How am I adding my self-differentiation to that process just by by knowing it and 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 that's something that uh actually is something that i'm gonna be patient with myself i'm gonna give myself uh the time that i need to really unfold my notion i'm not i'm very 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 skeptical of energy which is coming from the place of killing the father so i think that i, I do not trust that energy at all i see it in myself i do not trust it um i think that there's a much i think basically you know you have this confrontation with the death drive in my language. It would be, you know, it can be a killing impulse and, uh, you know, almost like a type of Jesus symbol. I think you have to turn that energy kind of in on yourself um, to bring out something new in some way. But, uh, you know, that, we can open that up in many ways. Right. Yeah. I think that's an important point to make to be wary of that impulse to kill one's father absolutely and yet i think just as archetypal is the reality of not being supported by the father as much as the son might need or or perhaps as much as the culture might need the father to do for sons so that there is in fact that healthy kind of transmission and working together in some important sense to open a clearing for that participation on the frontier in some sense to be responsive and trusted as responsible to be in relationship with the unknown that the father might now be too old to be in touch with in some way might not be as strong or as quick perhaps the frameworks are a little tired perhaps there is a distinction which needs to be made and so you know that's a very standard archetypal you know mythotype or something like this and um, there's another tension, actually, that'd be interesting to bring in here, which is a context I very much my, you know, find myself living in and struggling with. And that's being of many lineages, at least in the space of philosophy, spirit, or we can say perhaps religion, actually, I think I'd probably refer to say religious lineage rather than spiritual lineage exactly although there's obviously a relationship between the two and sort of bringing religion and spirituality into an interesting relational juxtaposition is something i'd like to do maybe a bit later on in the conversation but it's such a challenge like for instance one of the ways that i'm one of the journeys I've found myself to be on, you know, and um, the symbol of the bridge, for instance, has been something very present with me for a long time. And of course, is something which is comes up a lot in um, or is certainly very present 
in Nietzsche. There is this sense that modern culture, let's say whatever is considered as the the dominant human societal organism is at the moment a little bit like the snake that's eventually just going to have to eat its own tail in some important sense it's fallen out of touch with i would say an, an ultimately life-affirming way of being in relation with ecology and it's always seemed to me that the wisdom of all traditions, the wisdom of all people, the unicity of all people ought be welcome and in fact might be required. I mean, that's quite a radical claim. I'm not speaking about, it depends what you mean by unicity, but there's something in that that I, I definitely mean. That many traditions, many lineages are are necessary to come together and be in dialogical relationship with. And one of the challenges I find is that to be welcome, I mean, we're speaking, you know, before the conversation began, sometimes how it can be difficult to find homes in uh, any particular community. There's something of maybe there's a membrane there, a memetic, um, immune system that might not for whatever reason welcome this little bit of novelty coming in because it feels like it might disrupt the space a little bit but actually that little bit of novelty is carrying message from some other lineage whether self-initiated to some degree or not at all carrying it forward from a, a different religion or what have you and it just seems to me that in this transition when the paradigms by which we understand ourselves are entering into this necessary process of transformation and a kind of self-overcoming, perhaps we could say, that being able to um, at least be known as peer, at least to be friendly with different lineages, is so necessary. But that itself is, for many of these lineages, profoundly novel. And so, yeah, I find myself often struggling to, um, you know, find the right kind of address that I really want with different bearers of wisdom, different leaders of communities around the world. Um, there's simply not enough time to become an expert on every lineage, right? But is there something that at least most lineages are pointing to, and of course they're all dealing with subjects and they're all dealing with systems, right? To to quote um, the wrong way around the name of an upcoming book of yours. And yet it seems so often that, you know, it's necessary or it's uh, the protocol to have to swallow a full literature from this lineage to this lineage. There's a language game here and a language game there. And this is, you know, you know, influenced me in many ways, given that I feel so strongly a responsibility to truth as I live it, to reality as I experience it, and find that in order to 
do justice to my soul as well as to the spirit which animates me that this must be something I hone to right that on this and I, and I want to put that in some sense both on it there's, there's a novelty of that and there's also a lineage of that and um, and so there's something in that tension there's, there's a few tensions there which I'm trying to bring up and maybe I'll stop here just to see if there's something that's caught you and then I'm interested in how this can be unfolded sure well you started off by emphasizing that reality is not supported by the father in our in our culture and that that this relationship between father and son is somehow important for the healthy transmission of culture um <clears throat> And I think that that is, that is true for almost, if not the entirety of human history, that culture reproduces itself in some metaphorical relation between the generations. So, you know, the, the way I have thought about this, and this is one of my favorite ideas, is that because our environment remained so constant um, in hunter-gatherer times, meaning that you could assume, and people did assume, that the way I'm doing things now is the way my children will be doing things when I pass. So the culture I've inherited from my generation, from my elder generation, and which has allowed me to survive and thrive in this environment is the culture I can pass on to my children and they're gonna be able to survive and thrive in this environment. And, and conversely, children could look up to the elders and say, you know, the way my father, the way my grandfather did things is a lineage I'm gonna be able to continue on and I'm gonna be able to go on and, 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 and behave as they're behaving and represent for my culture in that way and uh, on the, female side, I mean, oftentimes that identification would come about, well, my mother gave birth to me and I'm going to, I'm going to become a mother and, 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 and I'm going to be, you know, reproducing myself in the same way as this lineage has always done. And you got to think about the psychology of that universe is that the psychology of that universe is basically um, an eternal process. You know, like this is the way things are done. This is the way things have always been done. Um, of course, in retrospect, we know that that's not the whole story, meaning the psychological perceptions of that cultural world is not, say, the truth in itself, because humans evolved. <laughs> there was a time where humans didn't exist. So how did that come to be? Um, and we also know in retrospect that there was a significant discontinuity in that cultural world with the emergence of civilization. Now, what was that cultural discontinuity with the emergence of civilization? It was the emergence of novelty in relationship to a dramatically complexifying environment. So in the hunter-gatherer world, again, the environment can remain basically constant, um, meaning, you know, lions, tigers, and bears, uh, summer, winter, spring, and you know, the seasons. You know, you have to oscillate with the seasons, you have to oscillate with the flora and fauna, you have to oscillate with the tribes around you and so forth. 
but that is pretty constant. Now in civilization, things get more complex because there are all sorts of new inventions, technological, cultural, you know, processes of differentiation, what we do for work. You know, we're not just hunting and gathering. There are all sorts of differentiation of professions that emerge. Um, throughout civilization, that process has intensified, meaning the processes of differentiation have intensified. The processes by which new culture, new technology, new professions, new ways of being have emerged. And what that signifies is a gap between generations, meaning that no longer do I, and now this is become increasingly true, but um, you know, it becomes harder and harder to see my father or my mother as models that will help me survive and thrive when I'm that age. It's much more likely that I'm going to have to differentiate and find my own way. It's not simply that my father can say, hey son, you know, this is the way I've run this business. This is the way I've run this. And, you know, and I'm going to teach you this. And this is how you're going to survive too. And this is how you're going to pass on my lineage too. It's much more abyssal. It's much more, you know, the father is doing something which is no longer relevant at all to you. And you've got to kind of go into the, the abyss, so to speak, and you've got to figure it out for yourself. And, it, and, and because, and now in the 21st century, this is just so apparent and so psychologically disruptive because, because we, again, it, our psychologies are not built for this radical discontinuity between the generations where, um, yeah, reality is not lo no longer supported by the father and in, in, in a technical sense. And, and, and this, this, um, is very anxiety provoking. You can see many, many symptoms of this, uh, not only, you know, feminism questioning the patriarchy and stuff like that, which is a, a symptom uh, of this, but there, there are many, many symptoms of this which are being expressed in the gender field, and that could probably be its whole, its whole convert, its own conversation. Um, you know, the whole death of religion is a part of this. <laughs> you know, because that is a patriarchal lineage which is supposed to be carried on. You know. As sort of a, an aside, I'm I'm watching um, the Crown with my with my partner, and uh, the Crown is an interesting little window into the generational gaps that have 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 changed just since World War II in the reign of Queen Elizabeth to, to today. And you see, you know, when you watch season one, and you're seeing Queen Elizabeth coming into power, and then you know when you're on to season five, and you're seeing all the tensions with Princess Diana. And you can see the way in which this transmission of culture, which is literally some patriarchal structure, which is trying to maintain some connection to eternity and some trying to maintain some connection to the immortal and trying to maintain some connection to what transcends humans, mm. um, that it's all falling apart, that, that it, it, nothing, something's deeply wrong. <laughs> that there's something symptomatic and 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 yeah this is you know we could I'll, I'll leave it there hey man that was great yeah really awesome yeah it's totally wild it's totally wild so i'd, I'd be really curious to hear you speak about how you've come to understand the terms or how, how at least you've come to employ the language spirit and religion
so maybe I'll just I'll just uh, ask that very briefly, and then um, we can dialogue a bit about that. Yes. Yeah, so this is a really important question. I don't have, of course, final answers here. Um, however, my guiding sort of mimetic structure. Well, before I say my guiding mimetic structure, I do want to say that growing up, I was always antagonistic to religion. Um, and I would even say, especially when I was a young adult coming into my intellectual maturity, I would say I was also antagonistic to the idea of spirituality as well. Um, but with that being said, the guiding mimetic structure in my mind has a lot to do with how Hegel lines it out in the phenomenology of spirit as it relates to these series of shapes or forms of consciousness which go in the order of consciousness, self-consciousness, reason, spirit, religion, absolute knowing. So in that series of shapes, what I think is that when I was coming into my intellectual maturation, I was in a culture which was very rational, but had no contact with spirituality, religion, or absolute knowing. So I, 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 I think about this in terms of the new atheist movement. I say the new atheist movement and literally like, for example, Richard Dawkins foundation is what's what's it the foundation of? It's the foundation of reason and science in society. And he's an advocate for reason. Right. So literally there's this deification of reason. Um, which influenced me a lot. And I think there's a lot of positivity in that <laughs> because it's it is important that we can have rational dialogue. Um, and I do think it's a problem if that breaks down, but that's not the whole story is the point is that a culture actually can't survive that way. Um, so basically in Hegelian language, it means that the rational concept on that level of reason um, exhausts its own possibilities. And, and within the failure of that exhaustion, uh, there are spiritual breakthroughs. Now, then there's sort of a, a spiritual uh, age. And I think actually, you know, if, if I was to say, analyze the culture we're in or have been in uh, for maybe the last five years, maybe the last 10 years, it's kind of the unfolding of the spiritual notion, meaning um, there's this emphasis on individual spirituality, which emphasizes your direct divine connection to something transcendent, right? Like your psychedelic experience, your connection to the psychedelic experience, um, your cultivation of spiritual practices, you know, whatever it is that your sort of connection to spirit is, um, the axiom of I'm spiritual but not religious, with religious always being some sort of larger communal, social, institutional regulations and so forth on to your individual experience, something that you are decentered from, right? Um, but I would say this individualistic expression of spirituality, especially in the context of modern capitalism, um, is itself exhausting its notion, again, to use sort of the way Hegel works to these shapes. And, and then there's a breakthrough. Always the breakthrough comes in the failure of the notion. That's, that's important. So, so it could be my hypothesis. I've sort of said in, in courses I've run, it could be that we are going to enter a religious age proper, you know, not a uh, religion that is not a religion, but a religion that is a religion. And, 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 
and that we refined religion, uh, you know, in, in, and that, and what I mean by refinding religion, I do mean this in a communal sense, in a network sense, in, and, and to me, religion has to pass through the, to be concrete and not abstract. It's not like I'm a Christian or I'm, a, you know, I'm whatever I identify as. Um, that is too abstract. In order to be a concrete notion, it has to actually carry the libidinal bodies, which are being processed through its larger totality, meaning that, you know, it has to actually help people reproduce and build a family and build a life and, <laughs> and, 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 uh, deal with all of the things related to sex, money, power, which we cannot do as individuals in this environment by ourselves. So that would be sort of the, like, you have to, at least in my thinking, you have to look for the underlying concrete necessity for the notion. Like, why is it necessary? You know, it, why is it, it, why is it, it's a narrow path which we cannot avoid but trying to go through this narrow path because all the multiplicity of other paths are empty dead ends. You know, we've explored that multiplicity and it's, 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 it, it, it's, it's a wasteland. It's a wasteland. So you have to go through this narrow path, which, which would be something like the religious notion. And then the question is, um, well, what, how would that religious notion unfold? And would then that religious notion exhaust itself and, you know, Hegel talks about that in the phenomenology of spirit as opening up to uh, something like absolute knowing, which to me and my understanding is, is that it's like religions are birthed by subjects of absolute knowing. That's my, my understanding of it. Like, meaning like if you look at the history of any religion and you trace it back to its founder or you trace it back to the key figures that are responsible for the story or the action that um, now people mythologize. It's something related to a subject of absolute knowing. Um, so that's how I understand the relationship between these shapes, meaning reason, spirit, religion, and absolute knowing. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I, I really like that way of thinking. So let me share with you how I chew on that and also see if I can express how I language and relate to some of these things. I think there is a difference. Partly I'm, I'm coloring that difference through a resistance I have to the what feels like a well it's a step-by-step -step description of a of a macro process and i think that i've been well i've mostly been relating to the dynamics of spirituality and religion from a more phenomenological approach and so certainly have not been to any good scholarly capacity analyzing and incorporating large periods throughout history as i know is is relevant in this discussion i say this partly because when i think of i mean for instance the way you articulated 
religion as that set of, in some sense, a kind of, um, I mean, it's a guidance set. It's a, it's a, a, a sort of a prescriptive way of coming into relation with others and the world so as to enable in principle the becoming of those participants and the realization of a i want to say a life well lived but in some important sense in order for the religion to maintain itself it has to develop subjects that maintain the religion and so there's obviously a tension there with respect to whether or not there's something about the fundamental needs of the subject which can come into conflict with the preservation of a particular religion of course religions being governed by subjects who in some important sense cannot be fully contained by the religion um, but they might be in denial about that and so they might be looking to contain others within their conception of what others should be and so in some important sense building in what would be a kind of perversion to the religion at least perhaps from the perspective of in your way of putting it that subject of absolute knowing who might have what was involved in birthing it initially but how I relate to spirituality and um, there's a way that Forrest Landry puts this which I think compresses it extremely well I won't offer that compression exactly but it's 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 very close to how I think about it which is that spirituality is the process of how a self you know my language kind of metabolizes the world or integrates world into self and then religion as that process of self integrating into the world and so religion as that, obviously coming from the words religare and then religio, so religare is something like to bind, to rebind, and then religio something similar, but it has a bit of an essence of a kind of um, an observance of a particular rule set. And so putting them together is kind of really observing what that particular process is of how we're going to gather and understand the world together in terms of our ritual practice and um, understand maybe the boundaries of what's uh, well obviously good or bad at different moments in history how to relate to these dynamics itself and you know sex violence all of this but that in some sense I think about you know a core aspect of religion as or ought to be sustaining a sort of um, and building and sustaining a home in the world that can afford the cultivation of a person's capacity, of a self's capacity to relate not only religiously but spiritually. But in that spiritual process, what that seems to be, as, as far as how I've been using the language, is that there's something paradoxical about the relation between the two because, because the spiritual partakes in something that's that seems to be fundamentally private you know you have to metabolize your own food you have to digest your own food which of course is in a way a ridiculous thing to say because of course bacteria 
for the most part, digest our food. And so we're in ecology of things doing this. Um, and yet, when it comes to relating to the world and others and the nature of self, there is something there is something I have to do for myself. And the kind of strength I can build as a self contending with the reality of being is is for me a deeply spiritual process and it's something which um, through the engaging with that in some sense through navigating the reality of that like impossible isolated moment which is in some sense my acceptance of like and an affirmation of my own creative participation in being which we might see as in some sense of an overcoming maybe of a kind of lack to pick up on some language we've used in in the past then that strengthening then that that trust i can build in relationship to that transformative process now becomes that which can revitalize a religion like in some sense i can tell now whether or not a particular context is treating other beings well or not in this regard whether or not it's affording them that capacity to cultivate their relationship that they must do with themselves and the world, right? Rather than tyrannizing them into um, not fundamentally participating and realizing through affirmation that being which, which they are. And so I think about that quite phenomenologically and then obviously socially a bit as well. And so wh where I where I sometimes when I see the sort of map of the uh, reason through uh, religion, through spirit, through absolute knowing is, is just that it would seem to me and maybe this is just that role of absolute knowing in in the in 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 Hegel and, and how you see things that there is, uh, you know, um, that there is a that there is a standpoint which I want to understand as a verb, as an ongoing process, um, which knows itself as engaging necessarily always in um, something. On the one hand, it undergoes alone, and yet necessarily must um, involve itself with others in the world. Something like alone we are together, right? The many in relationship to the one. And it's that verb and vibration and right kind of transformative process in between. And so it's it's kind of like, as I currently see it, I mean, as you're kind of articulating, um, I don't feel compelled to um, leave religion behind as a function. And I know precisely that's not what you're arguing for. You've, you've obviously just said that um, you're you're thinking that we need a religion perhaps that is a religion rather than a religion that's not a religion and um, that makes a lot of sense to me and yet the stakes couldn't be higher and the task seems you know um, like the hardest one possible to do well and with integrity and um, and somehow uh, must afford the kind of the becoming of subjects who know in their absolute being, in some important sense, that a fundamental mode of engagement in life cannot be satisfied by the religion, 
right? And in some sense, must always um, take them kind of beyond it and other than it, so as they can, in fact, know whether or not the religion itself is still vital, right? Is still is still treating life and death process well. So this is how I'm doing my best to sort of share how I think about this language. I find it really hard to do in in um, in words, uh, you know, but I have been writing about it a little bit. So what do you make of that in terms of how I'm seeing things with respect to how you structured it out before? Yeah, well, I think that to, to start, we should understand all of these shapes or notions, reason, spirit, religion, absolute knowing as uh, from the perspective of tension, um, that, that this is not uh, a, let's say, a, a tensionless equilibrium. Um, there is a conflict between these notions uh, from the perspective of one of the notions the other notions look absurd uh, from, you know, so there can be all sorts of misunderstandings that, that appear and do appear objectively um, in our historical field between people who are, let's say, trying to get a complete rational map of reality um, versus people who are emphasizing their direct gnosis of something transcendent versus people who are more focused on the, let's say, the, the rules or the normative order of religious life, um, which may appear irrational to some people, which may appear to be uh, taking away something deep from their own inner withdrawal or their own personal experience and so forth. Um, so all of these notions have to be understood as like the historical tensions, which we call human civilization and which which maybe why Freud said civilization and it and its discontents I mean he's talking about us you know? uh, the, the, the discontentment uh, among subjectivity and so you know another thing that you are pointing towards is that no matter what religion and this is the whole problem of religion in some sense is that uh, it cannot fully contain the subject you know, and, and and there might be some historicization to this inability to contain, like, for example, to refer back to the, the, the crown show, it's like, if you study the way in which Queen Elizabeth came to be the monarch, if you study the way she came to be Queen Elizabeth, there's a way in which the monarch had the power to contain her. You can see in her subjective coming to be that she was this free spirit, willing to break some rules here and there, willing to, you know, operate outside of the crown. And then you can see the weight of the crown coming down on her and you can see that she has to hide her subjectivity and, and you can see that she has to become the crown. And, and then you can see a few seasons later when she's talking to Diana, why she behaves the way she behaves, why she behaves like the crown without any personal, you know, uh, subjectivity in the picture. And you can see on the contrast, Diana, who's just this pure subject, you know, and, 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 and she's not going to be contained by the crown. 
and the crown can't contain her. And the crown is like, ah, you know, what do we do with this subjectivity? Right. And, 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 and you can see the whole world is changed so that now the subject has so much more expression and the subject's emotions have to be taken so much more into the picture. And you're like, well, what do we do about this? We have to change the crown. And well, why have we changed the crown? Because the crown's eternal. Right. So there's all this, all this tension comes in, into the, into the picture. And there's some very interesting nuances here when it comes to thinking about the historicity of the religious notion and the historicity of all these processes and 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 really at the core of of the the Hegelian problem is repetition is is does this do these shapes and forms you know how you know they repeat in every life world they repeat in every new generation but there's still this gap which you're calling absolute knowing which you know it repeats with a difference and that difference breaks down what we used to know of the repetition. And so the repetition has to change, you know, and, and, and into a new world and into a new environment, which is, which is, which is totally, you know, all this tension sort of is, is the meta historical tension. Um, and, and, it, you know, and then, then like to sort of end, you know, it's kind of like, you know, for me, the whole problem is, is like religion kind of functions as like in my, this is my view, religion kind of functions as a necessary transcendental illusion. But once you know it's an illusion, it kind of loses its efficacy. But at the same time, you need it as an illusion. So, but it doesn't really function if, if, if you don't really buy into it. You know, so so how how do, how does how does all how does all of that how does all of that work out? And and you know, it, it's kind of like I guess I always come back to like some paradoxes as it relates to the experience of Christmas on Christmas morning as a child, because so like that was like a super joy, you know, Christmas morning as a child, and like it functions on the basis of an illusion. Like I still remember when I was five or six sort of believing in Santa Claus and like my mom would even uphold the illusion by creating deer hoof patterns on the front yard and like simulating the process of the cookies being eaten and the milk being drink, drink. And, and I still remember wanting to record, uh, have a camera in the living room that would be playing throughout the night so that I could rewatch the tape of Santa Claus coming in and drinking the milk and, and putting the presents and that I could see for myself and sort of obviously coming to the realization that my parents are doing that as every kid comes to the realization your parents are doing that. Something is taken away there. Something doesn't function in the same way anymore. You can see, so you can both see like, but at the same time, are parents lie, like lying to their children? In a way, yes, that's a lie. At the same time, it's like a, a, a transcendental illusion which is holding a certain joy. Um, it's holding a certain magic. Um, and, you know, <laughs> I oscillate in my head as to what to do with that process. You know, and 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 yeah, I mean, these are I don't have answers here, but but these are the types of things which I find helpful to think about these. things. 
Totally. Yeah, I actually remember the moment where my dad told me. And actually, I think I asked him, I said, I can't remember the exact words, but I, I communicated something like, there is no Father Christmas is their dad, you know, the English version of Santa Claus. And whether he said no or whether he shook his head and sort of communicated the meaning of no, I can't remember. But I remember saying something like, I understand, you know, I understand. And I would have been seven, maybe, I don't know how old. So in, in many ways, I didn't understand. And yet I wonder how much actually I really understood because in my mind, of course, was my, my younger sister. And she was um, yeah, particularly joyous at Christmas, like you almost like she's, she's a very extroverted person. And um, it just absolutely loved it. I mean, I can remember lying in bed, uh, maybe as a six, seven, maybe, maybe when I was just figuring it out and I actually didn't like to come downstairs. Sometimes I'd take quite a bit longer. But I said I understood. And so, so what is it then? Because I don't feel... I mean, certainly there's, you know, from the perspective of a Richard Dawkins style reason, and there's plenty of delusion, illusion, lies, propositionally speaking, in religion, taking Christianity, for example, and as a text can be found for all these contradictions and um, what would be argued, you know, in, in a in the modern era as moral wrongs, sometimes even moral evils. And yet there is for sure a set of profoundly meaningful patterns as affordances, as guiding affordances for the cultivation of attending to the life world Jonathan Paggio articulating Christianity as um, affording sort of an appropriate hierarchy of attention, this kind of thing, uh, addressing fundamentally the, the problem of what to give attention to. And, you know, so in, but in the context, I mean, I, which I feel must surely be applied to just about every bloody religion, right? Um, that that is the aim that there's a that there's a a sort of collective agreement to participate at different levels of knowing in the furnishing and maintenance and preservation of guidelines and rituals as praxis for the cultivation and shaping of the kind of attention that affords a at least a resilient way of being in the life world for the human organism in relationship with the constraints that we've evolved as part of and of course those constraints in some important sense would be conditioned or understood in the context of a religion like christianity as the sort of the creative intelligence of god or something like this but even if we take that kind of idea that the subject steps into the story already conditioned by the 
life and death patternings of what affords its own capacity to know and to be, then there is a reality to how the nature of being in the life world can be communicated and in both a general sense, but in a sense that particularizes that reality of the nature of being and becoming in the life world to a particular time. And so in some sense, the religion must incorporate and update its understanding. And there might be a series of meta patterns which are able to do that through myth and what have you over very long periods of history. In that sense, a kind of adaptive ways of being course colored by the paradoxes and the tensions and the issues of that religion needing to re reaffirm itself sometimes to the detriment of what would actually be vital for the subjects in that given moment of history given the evolution or at least we can say the change in the life world by virtue of the novelty that is created <laughs> by whether humans as real as manifestations of God as creative intelligence or however you want to articulate that reality then but in terms of the illusion and delusion piece there's something like the necessity of a kind of as I as I am seeing it presently that there is something like a necessity to the um to to the dedication of um, some, uh, I don't have the right language for it, but something like collaboratively um, coming to understand and reanimate the affordances, like in some sense, the way as imminently and ongoingly realized by a field of subjects in relation and that effort that dedication that will in some sense to make possible understanding and being together is something like what i want to say is that that animating spell that makes possible the beauty of christmas <laughs> yeah so all right that was enough words try and somehow to squeeze out a thought there but don't know if that landed. Right. Yeah, no, it's, it, yeah, it's, well, the, going, going to Dawkins and, you know, his probably best-selling book titled The God Delusion and always pointing out the contradictions within, within the Bible and, and things like that. And, you know, that's the way in which someone to, to go back to these figures or shapes of consciousness, someone within sort of the figure or the shape of consciousness of reason, that's the way they're going to view religion. They're going to view it from the perspective of an illusion, delusion, which is full of contradictions, moral contradictions. Now, when you study in detail the phenomenology of spirit, 
you go through that shape and um, you know, and that shape has its process, but the whole status of the, like the philosophical status of like, let's say like the ontology of delusion or the ontology of illusion, it gets a different weight uh, within the religious shape of, of consciousness. And also the meaning of contradiction uh, gets a different perspectival shift. There's still contradictions. But the thing is, is like the way I understand it is almost like on the phenomenological frontier. So like, it's like, if you have someone like Richard Dawkins, they're looking at the historical evolution of matter, but they're not really present. But if you're present and you're paying attention to the phenomenological unfolding of the notion, right, which is where Hegel's mind is, you could say that, and I, I've said this, is that the absolute becomes through contradiction. Meaning that, and, and this is deeply, this is deeply, <laughs> you know, uh, practical and personal in some sense, because it means that by actually, and this is like for Hegel, this is like where thought happens. You know, like when you're thinking contradictions, you're 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 participating in the very becoming of the absolute and there's something which is deeply synergistic with the evolutionary worldview there because when you look at evolution when you look at the evolution of matter well how is evolution happening it's happening through life and death struggle like the fact that the fact that the you know the lion and the zebra you know, or or any ecological dynamic, you know, the uh, the fly and the Venus flytrap, you know, just watch a Planet Earth documentary, right? And totally quite insane. You know, Absolutely reality wild. is insane. Like, first you have to say that reality is insane. You know, like, let's let's have that. Like, that's my view of Mother Earth, and it's that's my view of, of Mother Nature, right? Like, it's 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 insane. And and like, the, there's a way in which you know, reality functions on this quite cooperative dynamic, which is inherently violent. You know, like from the higher order picture of the ecology, it's like everything's in its place or something totally. like that. But from the actual experience of all living things, it's violent and 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 difficult and and you're gone. Totally. Right? Like so so Hegel, in some sense, is asking us to think about this, but from the level of the actual becoming of the concept or the idea or the notion. Again, we're thinking about a mimetic ocean. We're thinking about a, 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 a you know, like, the, like for example, like, like, just give me, like, it's it's really fun to think in this way. Like, once you pass through a lot of negativity, is like. For example, just a few weeks ago, Jordan Peterson and Jonathan Pajot went on stage to debate this head of the British Muslim organization. Mohammed Hijab. About, yeah, Mohammed Hijab. And like, 
you can see there the Christian notion and the Islamic notion, and you can see the contradictions between them, and you can see the power games between them, and you can see the 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 you can see evil insidiousness there, and you can also see deception, and you can see all of these phantasmatic games going on between these characters, and it's like the actual combat or the actual tension between these notions is where the becoming of the absolute is occurring, right? It's not like, like on the deepest level, it's not like the Christians are right or the Muslims are right. It's like there are concrete Christians as a phenomenon, as a field. There are concrete Muslims as a phenomenon, as a field. And for someone like Richard Dawkins to say, well, they're just delusions. They're just going to fall away because they're not rational. It's like more likely you're going to fall away. They're going to keep on going on. And that's one of the craziest paradoxes of all. And one of the funniest jokes of all history to me is that the religious people, delusional as they may be, out reproduce the rational people. The rational people are so rational that they don't reproduce. <laughs> like the, the, the fertility rate falls because they're not because they're just being rational because if you're just rational well i think it's rational probably not reproduce in some sense like i'm not you know but if you have a higher order religious notion and you have a way to handle sexual difference which islam does pretty well and which christianity used to do pretty well well, then you have the whole setup of sexual difference and the higher order meaning of our relationship to a concrete idea, which is beyond us, which allows us to continue on our notion and pass it on to our children. And our children are going to be Islamic and our children are going to be Christian. And then they're going to pass on that notion. Right. So with, for a with certain a period of time, of, sorry, for a certain period of time. For a certain period of time, but like for, for like a, a Dawkins type of rational evolutionism, it's like, does that idea, that idea could be completely abstract in some sense. And like, that's like sometimes how I feel about the history of evolution is like, well, like, you know, I have a degree of certainty that that's how life evolved, but you know, that's like billions of years ago. It's not my living present. And, and does that idea allow me to carry on my lineage? And does that idea allow me to carry on and live a vibrant life? Well, I think there you do need to bring in other figures. And for me, that's why I went to figures like Hegel or Nietzsche or Freud or whatever, because it deepened you know, like in some sense, Hegel and Nietzsche and Freud are not antagonistic with the evolutionary idea in some deep sense. Like they can be brought into that universe, yeah. but they deepen it in a phenomenological way, which is to my mind necessary. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I certainly agree. Um, yeah. <laughs> the way through will not be the definitive way of Dawkins. That's for sure. Um, I... Yeah, he's a very interesting. I mean, he's a canonical character, you know, so fair play to him. He's he's definitely got his own bloody psalm in the Bible, in the new Bible that will be written. He's woven himself into the tapestry. Yeah. Um, yeah, awesome. OK, so. So let's see if we can, for the sake 
of this being a recording, I think I'd probably go a different way here if we weren't recording. But for the sake of the recording, let's see if we can link back up where we've traversed here um, in relation to the frame novelty and lineage. It's definitely been present. It seems like from the perspective, as you've articulated it, of um, absolute knowing, which seems to be like something like the um, the the kind of the like a like an like an imminent embodied concrete affirmation of the creativity that draws its energy from being with the tension being with tension um, which has the capacity for a certain revitalization of the ordering parameters of a um, maybe a given religion or let's say like the religious shape that makes possible the ongoing adaptability of a social field in the life world something like that um, I was articulating that before as sort of just the natural sort of dynamic between spirituality and religion um, but perhaps there's you know a distinction to be made there in, in terms of how one might understand the presencing of spirituality given the language that you've um, outlined which I think um, there's, there's definitely sense there for me in the context of novelty and lineage there is um, the necessity then of being with the tension of the many lineages that one is comprised of as a sort of vital participant in the ongoing realization of life um, and so that seems like a very 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 trivial thing to say and then maybe the place to go and you know unless you want to sort of color that in a different way the place to go then really is to the practical is to the concrete of our lives and that's where we were before we started this recording and maybe we might like to say a few things about that now um, or perhaps we might like to speak afterwards but there is a I think uh, there is a you know um, there so I'll just say a direction we can take is is to sort of present some of the struggle of efforts we're each making um, which I and I maybe will just articulate those as genuine confrontations and um, and also a kind of in some sense a, an, an acceptance as a kind of surrender to the necessity of being with the suffering and the joy and the creativity of life and all its challenges um, of meeting the world that the self has as subjects do while at the same time applying um, that creativity to what feel like very you know direct efforts at, and I certainly would not use the language of religion to describe what I'm concretely trying to do um, 
because, you know, mainly because of the idiosyncrasy with which I'm understanding that term and the feeling I have that um, maybe no one, um, maybe we're sharing in it together a sense of what we mean by this, but it's just not functional language to use to express to people because I know that um, it's not clear to me. My meaning is clear, uh, maybe even to myself. I mean, I, but certainly to others, but I am making like sincere efforts at developing contexts and um, kind of reliable structures which afford the possibility to gather and participate in a certain kind of meaningful relating um, where that's conceived with a profound depth and is opening itself to and is it, it, like in, 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 in explicit dedication is in explicit awareness of the necessity of engaging with these structures of our life world, the lineages that call on us to be this way or that way in the world at the moment, and the reality of the paradigms upon which we stand, as well as those ones looming before us in this transitionary moment. And so there is something, you know, shamanic about that. There's something, you could look at it almost as like the recognition that we must together facilitate a kind of proto field for what might make possible the birthing of that culture and in a way i mean something something similar culture and religion very something similar i mean they're not not absolutely the same but there's some important meaning carried over our present culture is not fit um, and we must develop the capacity to reliably participate, I would argue, with increasing consciousness in the reanimation and the animation of something at least appropriately novel in response to our world in transition. And, um, and in your case, you know, I, there's tremendous effort being made to create context for a kind of profound learning and deep engagement with key figures in the history of philosophy in a manner that makes possible the development and cultivation of real thinking as it can apply itself in our world um you know and I've, you know that that that's that's too reductive and i've probably been too ab like far too abstract about what it is i'm doing but i do see these efforts as as being very much entwined obviously education is a is a deep part of what i'm in, invested in wanting to contribute to so if there is a way that you might sort of tie together some of these themes in the context of novelty and lineage and how you find yourself navigating this tension in your embodied life and efforts in the world sure um you know i'm making sense of my, my you know making sense of the self is unfolding in the the journey of all of the self-contradictions as you work through them and you know what i will think about what i'm doing in 10 years time i'll only know in 10 years time um <clears throat> However, since sort of 
falling through the cracks of the university system, which I knew already when I was an undergrad was not going to be able to hold me. Um, I think the more and more I sort of try to make sense of, of my notion, it's, and where I'm differentiating myself, it's probably in this relationship between um, abstract, practical and personal philosophy, where I feel like a lot of the universities are abstract philosophy. I feel like there is a lot of attention already on the practical, which I think is good and necessary and should continue to happen. But I think where people have at least told me or reflected back to me that my work helps is in this relationship between the personal and the philosophical, um, making philosophy personal. Um, and I think that this intersection between the personal and the universal is extremely important, yeah. like the difference between an abstract universality where you're not really there and this sort of perspectival shift to realizing that your very personal process is how the universal unfolds itself and that the universal totally. doesn't really have an existence outside of that. I think yeah. that sort of has become important in sort of me trying to play my role in, in, in establishing or helping to establish a new culture. And I do see in some sense, my behavior as trying to play a part in establishing a larger culture, yeah. um, which is sort of new for, for, and speaking to our time, the way I sort of am making sense of it at the moment is that my work is in some sense, trying to facilitate a return to foundational discourses of, of the modern world. Like what are the discourses um, that were actually the symbolic substructure of what we call the modern world. Um, in some sense, you could say that that's different than like, for example, like the Jordan Peterson moment in some sense, like because the Jordan Peterson moment, he was basically making the argument that we have to go back to the metaphysical substructures of the ancient world and, and the mythological tales and the, and the psychological significance of those tales for understanding what humans are. And I totally think that that's a really important project as well. However, where I sort of place a little more intellectual emphasis is on the novelty of the modern world. Like the modern world is, is actually quite a, a rupture. It's quite a discontinuity with what we knew um, in the ancient world. And, and again, you can, again, I'll just bring it back. So there's continuity in our discourse between like, if you if you watch something like the crown like you can see that play out in 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 real time like the difference between like this pre-modern tradition which is trying to continue itself and this eruption of the new and the modern and the subjective which is forcing itself into the conversation more and more um and i think that's why i focused on like for example the figures like hegel and nietzsche and freud and there are of course many others but like I think what comes out is like in phenomenology of spirit with absolute knowing you do get this idea that there's something about the subject, which is uncontainable by any of the structures or shapes, which it moves through to become itself. Yeah. And then with someone like Nietzsche, you do get like this subject as such, the overman, you get this subject, which is just exploding and overflowing 
you know, and thus spoke Zarathustra. Yeah. And then with someone like Freud, you get this kind of institutionalization of attention to the subject's speech, like speak your dreams, babble your dreams incoherently. What's let's make sense of what went on inside you last night. Yeah. Right. Like that becomes primary. Um, so there's a way in which the subject is forced. This is the way I make sense of it. And like, as you already sort of kindly foreshadowed, I'll have a book coming out um, at by, before the end of the year titled Systems and Subjects, which kind of goes into this tension between the systems and the subjects. And there is this way in which there's this temptation to close on the subject. You could even like famous, um, a famous thesis of Lacan is that actually the unconscious motivation of science itself is to foreclose the subject, like that it wants to get rid of the subject. Totally. Right. So there's a way in which even, and like, this is also like to me, what even maybe breaks apart the Hegelian edifice is like, like this recognition that science itself wants to foreclose the subject. Totally. Right. Like that there's something about the subject, which is so, you know, like, the zero location of like anxiety and pain and suffering and love and joy and enthusiasm and all that stuff right which is just uncontainable and uncontrollable and 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 bursting forth and 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 of course not like non-propositional in some deep sense yeah so, I mean, I'll end there, but like, that's sort of like what, you know, how, like, that's what I'm trying to, you know, hold and bring forth and open discourse about. And yeah, that's. that's yeah. It. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Well said. Oh, there's so much to respond to there and take on, you know, in the context of science and how it treats subjectivity you know, I'll, I'll put a cork in it because we would have to come back, but I actually will just ask one more question because. Can I just say quick before that yeah. question that like the, the image I wrestle with as it relates to science and the foreclosure of the subjects. And I think is like the image of our time is the brain scan. Totally. Like that the, the, the brain scan is like a good, like, and the idea of mapping the brain and the idea that we could correlate exactly your subjective expressions to the brain scan even like in a psychedelic trip we can say okay this is your experience correlated to this brain pattern like this is oh this is this is the way it today that the subject is foreclosed in some sense yeah absolutely i think that's a that's a good example if i'm hearing you rightly then someone like alfred north whitehead will see something like that as a fallacy of misplaced concreteness or as like an example of that kind of thing um you know there's one of the motivating insights which is common to many 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 people but certainly something that was you know was very stimulating for me like a core commitment i had throughout university was just how is it that the reality of interiority, just the the quality of being itself is just not welcome. It's just not met. It's not addressed by the philosophy of science or certainly the philosophy of mind literature that I was 
reading at that point in time and that was just at a certain stage in the journey and obviously there's many theories of mind which seek to incorporate the nature of subjectivity with a bit more integrity but um yeah absolutely i mean there is a lot there i just want to ask though cadell i want to ask you about the course you have coming up because those who are still with us at this point in the conversation and thank you for those who are still listening and with us this might be a bit of a maybe a slight tangent but i think it's really worth listening to because cadell has a course coming up i believe it's in january it's certainly at the beginning of next year and the next one is yeah, on january 16th january 16th and it's on hegel's science of logic and so maybe you could share a little bit about why that text matters and maybe you know if it relates to what we've been speaking about then all the better sure for sure so so science of logic was Hegel's big project after finishing the phenomenology of spirit. And in some sense, Hegel only ever really wanted to write the science of logic. He wrote the phenomenology of spirit to prepare people in some sense for the science of logic because he wanted to be speaking to people I think on the level of what he described as, as absolute knowing, he almost thought you have to move through these shapes of consciousness before you're going to be able to understand something like the science of logic. So like the, the basic pitch of why it's important is because, you know, Hegel will outline in the, in the um, preface, the first preface to that book that Although science had totally transformed metaphysics, that science had, in his words, sort of made metaphysics um, impossible or unbelievable or just a relic, a historical relic, right? So, so you know, science had 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 moved into the zeitgeist of the of the, of spirit and had made all of the metaphysical speculations about God and the soul and, 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 you know, the fundamental nature of being things that were sort of almost relegated to a, a pre-scientific time. And his argument was that logic itself had not undergone the same scientific renovation. So we had, so science had renovated physics, it had renovated chemistry, it had renovated biology, it had renovated the human sciences, but science had not been applied to logic itself. And his argument was that logic itself remained in the exact same form that it was introduced by Aristotle. So his argument was that Aristotelian logic had remained the same over the last 2000 years and that logic itself needed new attention in the context of the scientific universe itself. But in order to bring science to logic, um, the contents of our own subjective reflection would have to be its object. So in other words, if science took physics as an object or if science took chemistry as an object and so on, all of these external products of reflection. Anthropology is an object, right? Science had yet to be applied to subjective reflection as such. And so 
for Hegel, that project unfolds um, in his, in, that's the point of the science of logic is to bring logic to subjective reflection. And his point is, we, is, is we have to understand our patterns of logic as the structure of metaphysics itself. That for, for Hegel, logic and metaphysics are the same thing. And so that if we just think that science gets rid of metaphysics, then we don't have a place for human logic in the, in, in the universe itself, right? And, and there's no place for the human anymore. And I think that's kind of, and why that's important is because, you know, just to connect it with what we were talking about before you asked me that question, is that there is this foreclosure of the subject. Our logic, our subjective reflection logic is, is there's no place for it. So just to give a brief, very, very introductory summary to the, the bare bones of his starting point, which Hegel says, if this starting point is wrong, then this science of logic is wrong, which is that for Hegel, the most illogical move that can be made is to think being abstracted from nothing. And he says that that move thinking being abstracted from nothing is the illogical move upon which the history of philosophy is based, which the history of logic is based. And so his move is to think a becoming which can contain being and nothing. And he says, if you can, if you can think of being, sorry, if you can think of becoming which can contain being and nothing, that's the unfolding of logic itself. So the way I think about it, the way I think about it is that that type of becoming is the becoming that can, can hold your own birth and death. And if your logic can contain that, that's, a, that's, that's in Hegel's language, that's a, a concrete determination. So like, for example, if you think about, like, if you think, and like, so if you think about, for example, like I'll use examples that have influenced me, but if you think about, a figure like Osho, I would say that Hegel's science of logic could actually explain to you the existence of a figure like Osho. Or like the way I've, the way I've described it uh, already in my class is, I think the science of logic can actually explain the existence of a figure like Zarathustra and thus spoke Zarathustra. I think, I think thus, I think Zarathustra as a character in thus spoke Zarathustra, is a scientist of logic in that sense of containing being and nothing. And I could go on and so forth about that, but that's, that's the basic pitch for the course. And why is that important to think? Because I think it helps you to deepen your idea of becoming um, and it helps you to confront this weird oscillation between the highest joys of life and the deepest lows of life, the excess of life and the confrontation with death and the confrontation with ending. And I think it helps you to, to withstand that. Yeah. And perhaps also to be able to give, like truly affirm the giving to a lineage worth giving to, because the lineage of course, is that which is beyond one's death or, you know, you could look at it that way. And, um, yeah, yeah, that, that was something like the point I wanted to make.
with respect to the connection between science and the foreclosure of subjectivity in relationship to lineage and novelty because well subjectivity there's there is a sense in which it is always partaking in novelty you know and for me this is a kind of point that was a moment i had reading bergson which i found very profound many years ago which is sort of recognition it's kind of just like affirmed to me so much of what had already seemed to me to be the case sort of ideas i was working with but the the recognition that the present becoming of consciousness or duration that the unfolding or the ever the evolving of time the participating in it is always furnished by the lineage or by its past and that therefore there is always a novelty that is in some important sense radical it's a radical heterogeneity in the bergsonian language and that's problematic for at least a certain conception of science where you have to fix variables and you have to control and obviously it's for the most part about third person measurement and observation and so if there's something which is inherently in that sense unique is participating in a kind of unicity then that would seem um, disruptive to that kind of logic and so what you're saying is that hegel's you know in in the western canon or perhaps you know just in history in general is exploring a way of thinking that's seeking to generate a rigor of epistemic inquiry that is factoring for the living reality the living ontology the on the actual a more a fuller ontology of yeah it's, of it's an on to be to be to be precise it's an ontology which includes subjective reflection and the contents of subjective reflection so how would you distinguish subjective reflection from subjectivity or just experience as such well i think the weird thing about human subjectivity to me is that we're not and this is in some sense we could now this is probably a whole other conversation of what's the tension say between bergson and hegel or something like that but there's this immediacy of intuition there's this immediacy of experience and then you know you could say for example that that immediacy of experience and that direct presence of intuition is is present within life as such you know life as such has access to that yeah is that yeah. In, in some sense is that like internal to itself as opposed to an external cognition saying what life is yep um there's a dimension of human subjectivity which has a reflective immediate a, re a reflective mediation of that immediacy right so like there's the immediacy of our conversation which is happening right now and then there's the reflective mediation of it which allows us to continue interacting as tim and cadell ah, 
Got you. Right? Okay. Like, so in a sense, this kind of lines up with how we were articulating, at least how I was trying to articulate spirituality and religion before. Right? There's something like the um yes. the, the necessity of of like affirming the intuitive immediacy and the unicity yeah. thereby, but also in some sense the isolated unicity of of experience, of subjectivity. And then from the standpoint of what would be then enabling uh, structured communication or us cobbling together formations of being in the world, religion, this process of binding with each other, and they have to both happen, right? They have to have and, an attention. And that's why Hegel said that logic was metaphysics. Right. Like, like yeah. that logic yeah. is metaphysics. Like, so, so he, yes, it's, it's in some sense, like in some sense it opened like, and I, you know, literally, I don't think there's been a project that's understood this and carried it on, but maybe there has, I don't, I'm just not aware of it, but if we're going to, if, if you accept the idea that we were at the beginning of the century in a, in a phase of the rational idea, and then we were in a phase of the spiritual idea. And now we might be heading into a phase of the religious idea. I would say to give the pitch to the science of logic that the science of logic might be the type of logic you would need to think the religious idea. Right. And to do so in a way that isn't naive. Yeah, definitely. Because right. you have to include nothing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. It's um, and so it's about your it's about you becoming a concrete determination. Most people don't realize, and this is one of the huge, this is a huge problem, is that most people don't realize how abstract they are and how painful it is to become concrete. <sighs> yeah, <laughs> we have to laugh. We have to laugh about it. Oh my God! Well. <laughs> this is yeah exactly right um well this has been awesome so um yeah there'll be links to for anyone who's wanting to um follow Cadell's work although of course if you've listened to this podcast a few times before you'll have heard potentially heard Cadell on it several times obviously with the philosophy of lack series and no doubt he'll return again and um and they'll also if um if it all works out, it's certainly my intention that we will try and do a, a restart of the transformative philosophy course in which Cadell was a was and hopefully will be again a faculty member if if logistics can all work out and what have you, um, which won't be um, uh, sort of asking the same degree of concerted grapple with a particular text, but importantly will be engaging the spirit of relating to philosophical process and being together in the world in a way that I think is, um, well, deeply resonant and, uh, well, which is in some part why we're having this conversation. There seems to be a, um, there's definitely a resonance here I really appreciate. And um, yeah, I look forward to you know many conversations private and public in the future i think it's uh, it's just a really exciting thing to do to be really engaging in a you know creative contemplative process 
about this material I find it always an incredible opportunity and it really stretches me and I know myself to have um, really developed a lot through it so yeah thanks Cadell and thanks for all the work you do just yeah pleasure pleasure to, to be on uh, voicecraft and um, looking forward to many many conversations in the future thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed the journey you can visit voicecraft.io to find out more about this project the network the mailing list opportunities to participate upcoming courses in the voicecraft academy as well as access the show notes for this episode at voicecraft.io and thank you as always to the patrons of the podcast at patreon.com voicecraft that's where you can pledge a small amount each month to support this work all right thank you for being here